When a drug ring crumbles, two aspiring actresses find themselves connected to the criminals and cops involved. A car king is dead, and a worn-out P.I. searches for answers. Follow us each week as we learn how to survive in L.A. Rachel pulls up to her West Hollywood apartment building after another late night working as a host for an upscale restaurant in Beverly Hills. She rummages through a pile of headshots and newspaper clippings looking for her purse. She gets out of her car and walks towards the building. When she arrives at her apartment, the door opens suddenly and she is pulled inside. Jason, you scared me. Come in quick. We don't have much time. What are you talking about? Rachel looks around the room and notices her TV, stereo, and telephone have all been dismantled. The pieces scattered throughout the living room. Various lines of text are written across the walls. Books and maps are in a heap on the kitchen table. Her boyfriend is noticeably distressed. What the hell? The apartment's destroyed! Jason stares blankly into Rachel's eyes. Hello? Who are you? Aren't you with the Times? Jason, you're scaring me. We just talked about this. Tell me this is a joke. A joke? You think weather manipulation is a joke? Do you know what happens when ionospheric pressure is applied to a satellite? Rachel takes a step back towards the sofa. No. What happens? It explodes! Just like that. Gone! Imagine, a weaponized device that can trigger thunderstorms, earthquakes, and hurricanes. Jason starts walking towards Rachel. She notices an intensity in his eyes she's never seen before. The back of her legs hit the sofa. Out of habit, she sits down. Don't you get it? A high-powered radio-frequency transmitter has the potential to destroy the Earth's magnetic poles. Entire ecosystems would be turned upside down, economies ruined overnight, plague, famine, and war could all be prevented. Rachel closes her eyes for a moment and takes a deep breath. Jason, it's me, Rachel. I'm your girlfriend. We've been living together now for three months, remember? You asked me to move in with you on your birthday. We walked along Venice Beach and watched the lifeguards train. So you're not with the Times? No, Jason. I've never worked for the Times. I work at a restaurant, remember? Jason walks over to the kitchen, opening several drawers. I was afraid of this. I suspected Harp was catching on. I discovered a transmission on a specific low wave frequency that... Ow, my head! If, if only I had more time to decode it. Rachel sees Jason pick up a large knife. Holding it in a stabbing position, he looks over at her. Rachel gets off the couch and heads to the bedroom. Jason tries to follow her. 
but she slams the door shut and locks it. Rachel takes one look at the dresser and immediately begins to move it against the door as Jason pounds on it from the outside. Please, Jason, I swear, I don't know what you're talking about. He breaks through the door and slowly approaches Rachel. I always knew death traveled with a familiar face, but I can't stay silent. Someone has to inform the world just what our government is capable of. Jason tackles Rachel to the floor, pins her down, and starts to raise the knife over her. Rachel frantically reaches around the floor until her hand finds an iron. Before Jason can attack with the knife, Rachel hits him in the face with the iron and knocks him out. She gets up and runs out of the apartment. Tears are streaming down her face as she starts her car and drives off. I guess we should note, we're not necessarily going in chronological order. It's just how the story comes together. Yeah, so a lot of this is in the past, but it takes place at different times in the past. I think you'll figure it out. Okay, okay. Now, sometime back, there was a hell of a drunken night at Rachel and her new roommate, Stacy's apartment. And it just so happened that Stacy was with her boyfriend, one John Stone. After getting wasted and in an altercation outside a nightclub, they bought some cocaine. Stacy bought a ginger ale, John a black coffee, and they ended up back at Stacy's apartment around three in the morning. After watching the Nature Channel, the two became intimate in the living room, apparently unconcerned about Rachel over in the next room. The following day. Stacy, that was disgusting. I'm sorry. If you're going to have sex, can you please just do it in your room? Yes, yes, Rach, I will. And those things you guys were saying. <sighs> Let's not go down that road, okay? It's his thing. I just go along with it. Okay, just please. Ah. I will, definitely. You really like that guy? Yeah, I do. He seems mature. Sure. I know John's older than me. People probably think I'm just with him for the money. Stacy recalls a few memorable moments in their relationship. Stace, an eight ball is 50. This is only 20. Stace, I, uh, I thought I had more cash on me. You ever heard the phrase, dine and dash? But I really like him. He's grown on me. What can I say? There is, uh, something I didn't know at first. I found out later, okay? He's married. What? Stacy? Rach, love is complicated. And I really believe that people change as they grow. In this case, John and his wife just grew apart. I've been on this journey for Terry for so long. Sometimes, you know, you just want to kill her. She just pisses me off. We're no longer husband and wife. That's John talking with a colleague at his dealership. The two men turn their heads 
to see a good-looking woman bending over. What a piece. Who is that? That's Stacy, our new secretary. You hired her. He's still married, though, Rachel says. But the thing we have, it just, it makes the details get all blurry. He wouldn't even be the first one to kiss me. I had to do it. Why? It didn't feel right, he said. Cheating. You gotta be kidding me. You know what? I believed him. I'm the only one that was there. And in that moment, the world just felt okay. complete. Okay, sorry. Chill. So tell me something about him. Well, he's a car dealer. Some people call him the car king. Come on, baby. Let me hear you say it. Say it. Oh, yeah. You're the car king. Car king. Yeah, he's kind of a big deal. He has car dealerships all over California. Wow. Mm Mm-hmm. He took it over from his dad. His dad was this big race car driver, and he gave it all up to have a stable career and be a father. It's such a sweet story. Is his dad still alive? He passed away a few years back. And that's how John got into it, selling cars. Listen, forget about me. You had your first Hollywood onset experience, right? How was it? Oh, I was only an extra. I've been there, girl. You gotta start somewhere. It's like being part of the scenery. There were 40 of us standing around a fake basketball court all day. And it was just an iced tea commercial. Listen to me, Rach. You'll never have a horror story like I had. I was an extra on a dog food commercial, if you can believe that. And you see, my boyfriend at the time loved beef jerky. He was obsessed with that stuff. I slept over at his house the night before, and there was a piece of beef jerky in my jeans. The dogs chased me and knocked me down. The crew, everyone, they were laughing at me. I turned bright red and ran out there as fast as I could. Ouch, Stace. Well, at least you know that's all behind you now. So how long did it take you to start getting some speaking parts? It'll happen before you know it. You're good, trust me. Yeah, okay. Is there always so much waiting around? Honey, that's half the job. You're not going to see John tonight? He's at another charity event. He does a lot of good for the community. And he's, he's just a good guy, Rach. You'll see. Come on down to the Rhino. We've got the best girls in town. Who knows, you might meet your future ex-wife today. Nagging wife? No problem. Trouble at work? We've got you covered. Our girls are desperate to fill the void in your life. And don't forget to wet your noodle during our all-you-can-eat spaghetti Tuesdays. The Rhino, where you'll leave satisfied and smiling. Bob, a retired beat cop, moonlighting as a PI, arrives at the Rhino Strip Club and parks his car. 
He's a heavyset man with a crew cut wearing a dark gray suit. He takes the fake badge and real gun out of his pocket and places it back in the glove box. He notices a particular car parked near the dumpsters and intentionally walks past it on his way to the door. Upon entering the club, he sees the bar towards the back and heads in that direction. What'll it be, the bartender says. High life if you got it. That'll be 225, partner. Here you go. Keep the change. Bob turns around and faces the dance floor. There are several strippers on the main stage dancing. To the left, a group of businessmen appear to be enjoying themselves. To the right, two guys in their early 20s, both getting lap dances. Bob gets up from the bar, takes a seat a couple rows behind them. It only takes a moment for Mount Lee to approach him. Can I interest you in a dance, honey? Not tonight, darling, Bob replied. You really gonna say no to these? She leans in closer. I'll tell you what, if I change my mind, I'll come find you. A little something for your troubles. Bob hands her a bill as she begins to walk off. Just so you know, not too many people survive Mount Lee, she says with a smirk. Bob sits back, observes the situation, and sort of leans in to see if he can hear what the two guys in front of him are talking about. That's Max and Trevor. So when's your dude coming anyway? He's missing something tonight for sure. I don't know, man. Probably soon. Said he'd be here before midnight. Man, I was thinking, why are we giving this guy our payday? We went in there. We dealt with the widow. We fucking put our necks dude, out on the line. Dude, we don't even know who this guy is with. He's the one that told us about this shit anyway. I got a plan. Let's get him drunk. We'll pay for the drinks. Give him like a hundred bucks or something. He doesn't even know how much we got, right? Then, out of nowhere, two Mexican gangbangers, Puppet and Spider, are standing in front of them, pulling up chairs to their table. They're both bald-headed, goateed, and tatted, and they look intimidating. Max and Trevor are clearly surprised. Bob sees the situation and perks up in his chair. You the guys, Puppet says. Uh, where's Gordo? Gordo's not around tonight, Puppet replied. Car trouble. Oh, okay. So, Gordo's not coming? Don't worry about fucking Gordo, man. Where's the package? Shit, man, are these guys fucked or what? Puppet and Spider don't exactly sound like people you want to be messing with. In fact, I'd say if your everyday interactions put you in contact with people like Puppet and Spider, you might want to question what you're doing with your life. Here's the thing. These guys, Max and Trevor, they're not exactly the brightest bulbs in the bunch. Well, they made their own choices and they got this far. These guys waste their lives peddling tourist trash, toilet paper that looks like $100 bills. It doesn't even make sense. They go through a box of Golden Gate Bridge magnets every week, and that place is like six fucking hours away. So he's talking about a souvenir shop in the heart of Hollywood. It's called Hollywood Dreams. Max and Trevor work there for the owner, Farad. Now he's the one who got them involved in this whole mess in the first place. We tried to get a hold of Farad to get his side of this, but uh, 
We can't find him. Farad, if you're out there, I'd say turn yourself in. But before that, come and talk to us. Max and Trevor are standing behind a counter in a souvenir shop on Sunset Boulevard. The wall above them is decorated with various California t-shirts for sale. On the counter, about a dozen fake Oscars marked $5.99. They're called killer bees for a reason, dude. No way, man. A fucking bee? That's just not possible. Dude, they've already killed like 10 people in the U.S. so far. I heard a whole swarm chase the guy down for a quarter mile before they stung him to death. Just stop it, okay? Really? You know how I feel about fucking bees. Biggest cock blockers on the whole planet. Two middle-aged Chinese men enter the store. They scan the room, then walk together to look at the California raisins and dancing plants. Another customer, an old man in his 70s, comes up and places a California state flag coffee mug and keychain on the counter. He fiddles around with the fake Oscars as Trevor rings him up. Honey Nut Cheerios, fuck that. Honey Bunches of Oats, fuck that shit too. Shit, man, even the color yellow can go to hell for all I care. Oh, please, let me guess. You're still hung up on that whole Caitlin thing? So you do remember? Of course. Who could forget the boy who was actually allergic to girls? The customer looks up. Who could be allergic to the greatest gift that God ever gave man? Trevor hands the customer his change. Like I said, dude, it's bullshit and you know it. Now what I would give to be young again, some of these girls out here are... Okay, okay, calm down, old man. The old man leaves the store. We gave you so much shit for that, man. Max and Trevor watch as one of the Chinese men runs out of the store. He comes back a few moments later with two women, likely their wives. Max rolls his eyes at Trevor. I had the hots for Caitlin, all right? She lived in the apartment complex behind mine. We'd walk to school together every day. Turns out she had the hots for me too. So one day, we're sitting on a park bench just talking. I'm getting ready to make my move. I'm just dying to make my move. All of a sudden, she leans in, and just as I can feel her lips, bam! A bee stings me in the cheek, and my face swells up like a goddamn watermelon. (laughs) Dude, whatever happened to her? I wish I knew. Her parents divorced, and she moved away after freshman year. Max picks it up. Hello? Are you sure? Okay. How much time do we have? She'll be expecting us? Oh, that's easy. All right, then. Peace. Max hangs up the phone and looks at Trevor. Trevor walks up to the tourists. I'm sorry we're closing. One of the gentlemen translates to the others, and they quickly head to the door. The Chinese man turns back around. People are very rude here in California. Bunch of assholes. Trevor motions for him to leave. Hey, I don't make the rules, okay? Come on. Let's go. He follows him to the door and hangs up the back in 15 minutes sign. 
Max and Trevor walk out of the store and around to the back alley. Trevor lights a cigarette. So what did he say? Gordo says now's a good time. How does he know what's in there? It's been fully checked out, dude. It must be there. Gordo confirmed it. The old man wouldn't give in and paid the ultimate price. That's how it went down then? A couple of guys break in. They take the woman away. The husband's trying to be the hero, guarding their life savings or whatever. Some balls on him. There may or may not have been a struggle. He ends up getting shot. The neighbors happen to be right outside, walking their dog. Shit for luck. They call the police. The two guys get the hell out of there. Empty-handed, I guess. Okay. So, what in the world makes you think the woman is just sitting around by herself now, waiting for someone else to come in and rob the place? Dude, she's vulnerable. She doesn't know what to do. Her husband's DOA. She's got no family in town. What the fuck else is she gonna do? Well, what about the two guys? You think they just gave up? Word is the neighbors saw their faces. Idiots would have to be morons to come back. They might be. It's gonna take at least a day or two for her to figure this thing out. If we wait too long and the police get nosy, we'll lose our chance. So let's get our shit together and get over there. They finish their smoke and walk back inside the souvenir shop. Well, that didn't really explain a whole lot, other than how they found out about John Stone's widow and the safe at his house. You said it was Farad that set it up, but the guy on the phone, his name was Gordo. Gordo is part of a bigger street gang that does business with Farad. Hollywood Dreams, the souvenir shop, is really just a front for Farad's criminal activities. Besides, Trevor's unique fascination with honeybees is something that should be studied for the ages. I should have known better. Okay, we're kind of getting off topic here. So currently, we know that Rachel and Stacy, the aspiring actresses, live together. Stacy was dating John Stone, the car king. Now, there was an attempted robbery at the Stone residence resulting in John's death. Max and Trevor, via Gordo, steal what's in the safe and take it to the rhino to divvy up the loot. And let's not forget about this Bob character there snooping around. Yes, of course, Bob. It's easy to forget someone who rarely talks and is currently lurking in the background of this story. It might sound cliche to have a PI snooping around Los Angeles, but his role becomes clearer as we go. Let's not divulge too much just yet. I think now's as good a time as any. Let's take a little trip to a different part of town. So if you want to get from Hollywood Dreams Souvenir Shop on Sunset to our next location, a 7-Eleven in Boyle Heights, you'd swing up North Highland Avenue, hop on the 101, and head south. Now at this time, you probably wouldn't pass any Bruce Willis movie posters on the drive there. 
Maybe you'd see an Ace Ventura pet detective poster, or four weddings and a funeral, or even The Chase, starring Charlie Sheen. But you wouldn't see any Bruce up now, at the beginning of 1994. Bruce had finished filming a little movie by a sophomore director a few months earlier. It was filmed all over here. North Hollywood, Canoga Park, Pasadena, Glendale. The movie? Pulp Fiction. You know what Bruce's next movie was? Die Hard with a Vengeance, 1995. I was reading about it, and I guess the script they finally ended up using was called Simon Says. And Samuel L. Jackson's Zeus character was actually written for a woman. Interesting. Yeah, no shit. So Bruce is probably relaxing, doing whatever Bruce does, and somehow, through some wild series of events, he ends up in Boyle Heights. Boyle Heights. We've been stuck on the 101 this whole time, trying to take exit 133 to Euclid. Finally making it to Boyle Heights, just as our guy Mickey is pulling into the 7-Eleven parking lot. As he turns the engine off, he looks over to see a brand new Royal Blue Acura NSX pull in, a couple spaces over. Mickey sits for a moment to admire, then exits his car as the other driver exits and walks towards the door. Mickey is still staring at that car. Nice ride, Mickey says. Thanks. Mickey looks over to him and does a double take, but isn't sure who he is. In the store, Mickey heads for the beer, grabs a case, and ends up behind this guy as he's paying. He's definitely some actor, but where have I seen him before? Hey man, let me get that for you. Mickey, speechless, places the case of beer on the counter. This mysterious actor pays, takes his stuff, and goes for the door. Take it easy. I'm fucking telling you it was him. Mickey is convinced that Bruce Willis bought him that beer. Bullshit. So you're calling me a liar? Bruce wouldn't drive a fucking Japanese car, man. Now, as they tell their 7-Eleven story and bicker about Bruce, we've got four guys here leaving an Italian restaurant, walking towards the parking lot. These are Italian mob guys, three of them, and their new friend. So Vinny is a boss. Now, he's in charge of things in L.A., and he's in charge of these two, Mickey and Ronnie. Mickey's been with the organization a long time. Ronnie's only been doing jobs a couple of years. Now, Ronnie's taller than Mickey. Mickey's built like a bulldog, short, stocky. They both have jet black hair, they're clean-shaven, and Ronnie's got those kind of eyebrows that point up, that make him look like he's always worried about something. First of all, there is no way Die Hard would be caught dead in Boyle Heights. And second, he wouldn't waste any money on your sorry ass, Ronnie says. Hey, hold up a minute. I gotta make a call. You and that fucking pager. Mickey runs towards the main boulevard to the payphone. The rest of the group keeps walking. So Ronnie and Vinny, our boss, are left with John, headed towards the car. That's John Stone. Stacy's boyfriend, John Stone. So this is the before picture, okay? This would be one of the first meetings that set off this whole series of events. 
John making a deal with these guys. Vinny notices the serious look on John's face. Don't look so down. You're about to make a lot of money. Oh yeah, yeah, I know. Just kind of letting it all sink in. If you had asked me last week, would I now be working with the Italians on a special project? Well, you know. Ronnie leans against the car. That's the beauty of it, Ronnie says. You see, you're sort of doing us a favor, helping us with a problem. It always pays to help out a friend. Vincent lights a cigarette and sees John staring at the ground, obviously bothered. Still with this? Really? Vinny says. Well, I guess I'm just worried we'll get caught or something. I don't want to go to jail. I could lose my whole business. I wouldn't last two minutes in the slammer. You have to remember, John. It wasn't me who came to you looking for an opportunity. I get that. I'm by no means backing out. I guess I'm just nervous is all. We went over this already. The purchase orders will have the VIN numbers attached to them. The cars are staged down at the plant. Arturo's people do their handiwork, load them onto the back of freight cars. They take a ride up to California. Your guy at the shipping yard makes sure they find their way to the dealership. Mickey finally comes back from the phone. Vincent, we have to make a pit stop if that's okay. If you say so. Just need to take care of a thing real quick. The men get into the car and pull out of the parking lot with Mickey driving, Vinny riding shotgun, and Ronnie and John are in the back seat. Ronnie taps John on the arm. So how are you going to make those cars disappear from your dealership? It's not that hard. Cars are in and out all the time. I simply say they're being held for a customer or I write off a couple for showroom stock, donations. Once the money's in, I'll just rotate the VINs on paper. It's not uncommon to have five, six, seven cars in limbo at any given time. Will you have to keep records of these transactions? Well, when a car comes or goes, there's going to be a record. But things get lost. How can you be so sure Customs isn't going to notice any of this? At this point, Vinny turns around. Will you stop breaking his balls already? We have this whole thing ironed out, and I don't need you creating any more panic. The car pulls into a suburban neighborhood and comes to a stop. Just give me a minute, Mickey says. Mickey gets out of the car, walks up to a nondescript house, and knocks on the door. When a man answers, Mickey forcefully makes his way into the house. Screaming is heard. Several minutes pass. Mickey exits the house holding a small duffel bag. His hands and shirt are stained with chocolate. He pulls open the car door. (sighs) Motherfucker didn't want to pay up. Hey, you were supposed to get the money, not fucking indulge yourself. Nah, Vinny, it was death by chocolate, Ronnie says. The wife was distracting us from our conversation. I threw her fucking cake at the wall. How much was he in? Like five large. So I take it he put up a fight? Asshole tried to, but I don't think he'd ever thrown a punch in his life. The wife came in, he tried to smooth it over. I had to slap her around a couple times too. She was a looker, that one. If only I had a few more minutes on my hands. Hey, Mickey, uh, we could have waited a few more seconds. That's not no problem. Listen, fuckstick, you probably couldn't even get it up. Okay, okay, let's get out of here. 
Vinny says as the car begins to move. John, observing all this, is visibly freaked out. So that's how John Stone got in bed with the Italian Mafia. Yeah, I know. I thought they only existed on the East Coast. Our guys in LA reporting to Vegas, and Vegas was reporting out East. And they were working with Mexicans? It might sound like an unlikely pairing, but the Italians and the Mexicans have been working together off and on since World War II. It's funny how drugs and cold hard cash can bring people together. But we'll have to get to that later. Yes, we will. And there's plenty to get to. So follow our characters next time as we learn how to survive in LA. Mm-hmm.